Welcome to our supplemental presentation based on our last message um, on Israel and, and the last war. We decided to do a supplement based on some of the feedback to look at um, the nation of Israel and is there a spiritual Israel and some other issues that have come up. Um, I, I do want to remind everyone that the purpose of that first message was not um, a commentary on the war or even supposed to be um, a, a, a diatribe deep into history, it really has to do with the fact that we are living in a time of deception. I call it the age of deception. As outlined in Matthew chapter 24 and verse uh, 3 and 4, where Jesus says, be not deceived. Um, so this is, um, what we're looking at is that there is a rise in false prophets. And the false prophets can be summarized as evangelical uh, Christians, apostate Protestants, as we uh, also are call, are call them. Uh, and this rise in, in false doctrine and false thinking poses a threat. But it's not just in the evangelical circles. There are those inside Adventism who do not understand these truths, who are still keeping feasts, who still think that you know, there's a, a value to um, the genetic or, or, or physical uh, bloodlines back to ancient Israel. And so I wanted to clarify that. Also clarify a little bit about the third temple um, and just further shine a light on what's going on in Palestine and Israel right now. As we record this, um, there is the just begun a truce or a ceasefire um, in this war. Um, hostages are being released, hopefully today as we speak. Um, and so there are constant um, changes and evolution to this to this crisis. One of the big backlashes, one of the most fascinating parts of what's happened is that on college campus, campuses and on the streets, of major cities in the West, we've had massive protests and a lot of, of talk. Um, the slogan from the river to the sea has been uh, said now. Those some Many say that this is a call for the elimination of not just the Jewish state, but of Jews in general. Uh, there's a lot of talk about genocide from both sides. It is a time of great um, crisis, devastation, destruction, and death. And so it is, a, it is of major importance. The question is, is this something that um, is necessary in the chain of prophetic uh, occurrences? And what I would say to you is it is, but not in the way many think. And that was the purpose of the previous message. That in fact, this idea that Israel has to exist for Jesus to return is not biblically based. Um, and you can make the political arguments for or against Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to do. From, from the lens of prophecy, many have been deceived on this issue. And that's uh, kind of what we're going to expand upon a little bit here. But as the ceasefire goes, uh, continues, the protests have really uh, been pretty overwhelming uh, in terms of the size and scope for police forces. And I think it just speaks to the fact that we are living really in the last days. Um, and, and I say that not because the protesters on either side are right or wrong, but because people will come out and protest. The word Hamas in Hebrew uh, means violence. Hamas. It is the very same word used in the book of Genesis when it says that uh, there was violence in the land. And God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Why? Because there was Hamas. There was violence. The spirit of prophecy tells us that that violence in the, in the SDA Bible commentary was one in which people took by force what they wanted. 
One of the signs of the end, Jesus says, is that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be uh, when the coming of the Son of Man shall be. And what does that mean? That means that there will be Hamas. There will be violence, violence to get what you want, violence on your appetite and indulgence, violence that will not simply be violence of killing to fight a war, but you are going to see rape and carnage in ways that are really um, barbaric and dehumanizing. We are living in the last days, and this recent conflict, the things that are happening, speaks to that. So today we want to answer a different question. We want to look at who is Israel. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 14 through 16. It says, but God forbid, Paul speaking, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Before I announce the message title again, it says that what matters is that you are a new creature. Then Paul says, that there's mercy upon the Israel of God, speaks to the fact that there is an Israel that is not of God. So our message is entitled, Who is Israel? What is the fingerprint? Who is Israel? Last Day Events, Part 11. And this is a supplement to Part 11. Part 12 we'll do in church. We're recording on a Friday We're in church tomorrow. And we'll talk a little more about that in a second. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I thank you, Lord, for your truth and for your for all you offer us, Lord, and as we go deep into these subjects now, Lord, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit. I'm asking, Lord, for the indwelling of your Holy Ghost, that it would lead all of us into truth. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so John 3, verse 1, says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is shocked. Jesus says, listen, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Are born again. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Because Nicodemus is making the mistake many make today, that somehow salvation comes by who you were born from or from your genetic legacy. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. And here you get the idea where some would call that there is a spiritual Israel, one that is not born of the flesh, one that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak what we do know and testify what we have seen and you receive not our witness. How could you be a master in Israel and not understand that salvation doesn't come from the flesh. That is not who you're born to that makes you righteous. 
He says, Jesus says here, if I have told you earthly things and you have believed not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that hath come down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So he speaks of himself. And Jesus says, and as, a, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have, ever, but have eternal life. Now here is interesting. Jesus said, listen, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to look up at me, lift it up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent. The serpent was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up. Jesus became sin who knew no sin that we might come to know his righteousness. When he was lifted up and we look to him lifted up, um, this is our opportunity to eternal life. It happened at the cross. He says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, some are saying that that's not true. It's not whosoever doesn't really apply to everyone. It only applies to those who are foreordained. Like some people believe in predestination, which is foolishness. They, some are, are believing that there's just a select flu who does whosoever applies to. This is a demonic lie. All of that. You have choice. And here's what the scripture says in John 3 and verse 16. Um, it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says this, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That word world there applies to the entire world, the entire human race. Speak to, we're going to talk about the black Hebrew Israelites a little later on, but there are even some black Seventh-day Adventists who are foolish enough to believe that somehow it takes a bloodline that this doesn't really mean the whole world. Romans chapter 10 and verse 11 says it like this, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no requirement. Whosoever, let him come. Yet there are those who want to change this to be a genetic test. There are people literally thinking, oh, have you seen the DNA studies on these people? Have you? That is foolishness. There's no DNA study needed. What is needed is faith, as we will see. It is a belief in Jesus Christ. So here are the questions for today. Number one, who is Israel? Is there a spiritual Israel? We're going to go deeper. We're going to go back into that from the last message. Number two, do the prophecies for the restoration of Israel and a third temple apply to anyone today? Number three, should we, wait, should we be waiting for a David or a Messiah to sit on a little, literal throne here on earth? Or dwell in a literal temple here on earth now? Should, is that what we should be waiting for? These next three questions I'm, I'm not going to get to today, but I'll incorporate them into the message for tomorrow, which is uh, a message um, on the close of probation. So one, how did we get the false doctrines discussed in the previous message? I, I may not get to that one so much, but I, I, you know, spoiler alert, I'll tell you. Starting with Jesuits who brought in the teaching of futurism that evangelicals bought into. And here's why they bought into it. Here's why this is so relevant. And right around the time of 1844, in about 1840, as we'll talk about in a little bit, a Zionistic movement arose, not among the Jews of England and Europe, but specifically among evangelical Protestants in Europe and England, England particularly. 
This would ultimately lead to what we call the Balfour Declaration. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it was out of Jesuit doctrine that pushed futurism to hide the world from seeing the truths about the anti-Christian and anti-Christ position of, that Daniel speaks of and Revelation speaks of in Revelation 13 and the little horn of Daniel that was sitting on the, on the papal throne. In order to move that out, these folk bought in this Jesuit lie. So that's where these, these false doctrines come from. They're not biblical. You'll see. Uh, verse 5, are we seeing the beginnings of the War of Armageddon? And does, the does that tie into the Euphrates drying up? That we'll have to hit in the next message. Verse 6, what does it mean when the Bible says whomsoever in all the world? I kind of just touched on that. Um, maybe I'll get into that a little more tomorrow. But I want to highlight and say again, anyone who teaches, when Jesus says in John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believeth in him shall not perish but have, ever but have everlasting life. Anyone who tries to restrict the word world is working on Satan's side. Because Jesus' last command to his disciples is to go ye therefore and to all the world and to preach this gospel. It says, and this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness. The world is the world. There's no subset of the world that this applies to and any group of people that are automatically excluded. That is satanic doctrine. So first question. Who is Israel? Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3 says this. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Paul speaking now. He says in verse 2 that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here Paul is speaking about his own kinsmen, his own being a Jew. You go to Romans chapter 11, actually, verses, actually Romans chapter 9 through 11, puts the idea of a genetic birthright to rest. It, it finishes it. It makes it clear that this is a spiritual issue. But Paul talks about the fact that he is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. He goes real deep into this in the scripture. But he says in Romans 9 and verse 4, he says, who are Israelites? So here he asks the question. He doesn't ask it as a question. He makes the statement. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? And he's speaking about Israel as we understand it from the Old Testament. Who, verse 5, who are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came who was over all, God blessed forever. Amen. He says so through this lineage of ancient Israel, the physical Israel, Christ came. Verse 6 says, not as though the word of God have taken none effect. And here he makes a clear distinction. Romans 9, 6, the last part says this, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. They are not all Israel which are of Israel, which tells you that it is not a genetic thing, that you are not automatically included in. John Hagee, if you listen to some of these guys talk about Israel and, and, and you know, they, they, some of them actually will give a doctrine that you can be, just because you're Jewish or, or, or from the line of Israel, that somehow you can find salvation outside of Christ. Paul says, listen, not everyone that says they're Israel is Israel. Watch this. Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Not just because you're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And what was the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? One was the product of the flesh. Abraham's seed because they made, he, Sarah, and Haggai made a decision. Well, I'm not sure how involved Haggai was, but made a decision to have a child outside of God's promise. 
And Isaac is the child of the promise. He was born out of faith. So verse 8 says this, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So it's not that you have lineage back to uh, Abraham that makes you a child of promise. It's this faith factor. Faith is the key. So we jump to Galatians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This is what's happened to many Adventists, evangelicals, and others today. They've been bewitched. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He says, listen, did you receive the Holy Spirit because you were so obedient to the law or was it because of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, here it is, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Bam, there it is. You're not the child of Abraham because you were born a child of Abraham. Not in the not in the not in the not in the current time in which we live, not in the New Testament. You are a child of Abraham because of your faith. Goes on, he says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. He would justify who? The heathen through faith. Preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. I had one guy, I was having this discussion with him. He was going into this black Hebrew Israelite stuff. Seventh-day Adventist dude, knew him in church for many years. Listen, man, you don't understand. We are Israel. You got to understand. We are one of the tribes. And because of that, we have the, we have the promises of Abraham. We get the blessings of Abraham. I don't need to do DNA ratification, even though that's not what they're doing. They're just saying they're, they're of the children of Israel, which they are not physically, because I don't need it. I don't care if I am. The Bible makes it clear that so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. I can be blessed with Abraham because of my faith. And this is going to lead into our next um, series, Righteousness by Faith, which we'll start after we finish this last day event series, because this is key. And a lot of people don't understand this. Galatians 3 and verse 14 says this, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ, Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Guess what? The promise that Abraham got can reach the Gentiles. And some people say, well, the Gentiles just reply to these small group of people. I've just read to you, he also said the heathens. If you are an unbeliever, if you are someone who did not know the Bible at all, not connected to the nation of Israel at all, I mean, that means uh, the native tribes of, of the Americas or, or, or the far-flung parts of Asia or, or deep into Africa, if wherever in the world you were, if you had no connection back, you didn't need it. Because the blessing of Abraham might come to you through Jesus Christ. 
that you might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. To make this point, look at this. In John chapter 1, verse 47, the Bible says this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Now, he's in a, a, all around nothing but people of Israel, right? Jesus is an Israelite himself. And yet he says that Nathanael is an Israelite indeed, and in whom there is no guile. So what does the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary say on this? An Israelite indeed, or truly an Israelite. That is, one who served God in sincerity of heart and not as a hypocrite. And you can look at those verses in Matthew. Nathaniel was one of that small but devout group who earnestly awaited for the consolation of Israel. See Luke 2.25, and aspired to the high ideal set before them by God. A true Israelite, here he is, was not necessarily a literal descendant of Abraham, see John 8.33-44, but one who chose to live in harmony with the will of God. You can see all those verses there, some of which we're going to go over in this talk. Everything from Acts 10, 34, John 8, 39, um, Romans 2, 28, 29, 9, 6, 7, 25 to 27, 10, 12, and 13, chapter 10, 12, and 13, uh, verses 12 and 13, Galatians 3, 9, 28, and 29 out of that chapter, and 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. So here's what it says about guile. This is important. From the Greek dolos, literally bait, such as for catching fish, but figuratively. figuratively. Look at this. It said that Nathaniel was a true uh, Israelite indeed, a man in whom was no guile. What is guile? Here it is. It's like bait for you to catch fish. It is trickery, guile, treachery. False, false pretenses are the bait used by the hypocrite to convince men that he is better than he really is. This is the argument of the Christian nationalists, the black nationalists, the black Hebrew Israelites, the shepherd's rods. All these folk want to convince you they're better than they really are. They are not real Israel. They're not spiritual Israel. They're not Israelites indeed. They have guile in their mouths based not on the faith of God, but on their own flesh, on their own self-righteousness, on their own pride. Huh. You see, a racist cannot be an Israelite. Black racist, white racist. If you think you're better than someone else, you're full of guile. You're going to create language like Hitler did. I'm reading a really good book now by a pastor who's describing the destruction of Western civilization ideologically. And he goes to Mein Kampf, Hitler's evil, horrible book. Hitler basically says we have to mislead people. We have to lie to people. How does he do it? What is the guile that is found in that monster's mouth? It is the guile that the German people, the Aryan people are better than everyone else. This is the guile that Satan spouted. Ye shall be as gods. So here's a picture of the black Hebrew Israelites here at the um, U.S. Capitol. Who are the black Hebrew Israelites? Um, this is from one of the Jewish uh, sites um, showing you that these black Hebrew Israelites, are, are, they're a big deal now. They believe that black people, and this one guy in, in the south of Chicago came up with this whole concept and said that black Americans are from the tribe of Judah and the Jamaicans are from one tribe, Puerto Rican. It is a complete bowl of malarkey. It is foolishness. It has no rational, it is the most foolish, senseless thing you'll ever listen to. And it has crept into Adventist circles where black Adventists are trying to talk about uh, DNA and all this kind of stuff. That tells you that they don't even understand the times in which they live. 
They want themselves at the center of things rather than Christ at the center of it. And there's a lot of talk now about Christian nationalism. You know, there are a lot of people talking about white Christian nationalism, which is the same thing. It is basically, you know, we are Americans. We are Christian. We're going to make our country Christian and elevate ourselves. But it's not different from black nationalism. Some black Christians are beating up Christian nationalism that comes from the political right. And they're ignoring that from the political left and from our own black churches, Adventists and otherwise, there is a whole move around black nationalism, which is the same guile. Satan doesn't care which side of this foolishness you jump on. All Satan cares is that you start to think that you are important. And sometimes he does that by giving you a doctrine and a theology of victimization. The irony is the Christian nationalist that's white and the black nationalist who's black both claim to be the victim. That's the brilliance of Satan's end time deception. Jesus said it like this, Matthew chapter three says, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the ax is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Jesus said, listen, if I wanted to make descendants of Abraham, I could, I could make the stones of the descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. That's why the scripture tells us that the, the, the original nation was cut off and others have been grafted in. God forbid, Galatians 6, 14 through 16 says, but God forbid, this is a scripture reading, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not glorying in myself, blackness or whiteness or Americana or being a Jamaican or whatever it is that you have, Irish, Italian. There's no glory in it. If that's what you're glorying in, you are destroying your own opportunity at eternal salvation. Paul, who was more a Jew than anyone, who was a Pharisee, who had persecuted the church, Paul himself says, I, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. You're not supposed to be trying to pick up the world and be part of the world and have identity with this world in your nationalism. You should be crucifying the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. What matters? It isn't whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It isn't your flesh that matters, your genetics, your DNA. What matters is that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, Paul says here. It says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. You see, I want to be a part of the Israel of God. I'm not trying to be a black Hebrew Israelite or a Christian nationalist. None of that, that stuff is all foolishness. I have no belief, although I am, just as Paul says in Romans 11, there are many Jews that will be saved, that will come to know Jesus Christ as the Savior. God has not given up on them individuals. But there's no salvation in the nation, a group of people, whether it's the nation of Islam or the nation of Israel. It doesn't matter. Philippians chapter 3 says this. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? I mean, I have no confidence in who bore me and who I descend from. Verse four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. Paul says, listen, I'm more, Israel, more of, of the tribe of, 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 of a descendant of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew exactly who he was. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I followed the Mosaic law perfectly. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Not, no more does he need to follow the, 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 the ceremonial laws, the feasts and all of this stuff. Paul says that stuff I counted as loss now for Christ. Verse 8, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And look at what he says, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Some of you have elevated dung. Think that you understand this thing and you picking up yourself some, you know, even this, this rallying around what's happening in the Middle East on either side, it's dung. Neither side should you be over, we should be praying for peace. We should be praying that the, that the war stop. We should be praying that people would be open, that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go in, that souls would be one. We should, we should be praying for that. But we pick sides. We don't understand where we are in prophecy. Exodus 19 says it like this. Speaking of ancient Israel, Moses, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, Moses speaking to the people, and keep my covenant, through God speaking through Moses, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure. Look at the words here used. Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God says, Moses, go and tell them, listen, obey my voice indeed. And keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. It shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what Moses is to go and tell him. So jump to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter almost quotes this, almost verbatim, and look at who he's speaking to now. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. I don't know how much more clear this could be. He's, listen, all of the promises Moses gave to the people back in Exodus chapter 19, here Peter speaks to the church. He says, listen, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you might show forth praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people at all. Now you're the people of God. Who is he speaking to? The church. All of that has been transferred to the church. And it doesn't mean that, again, the, the, the Jews that are, that are of the lineage of, 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 of Isaac and Abraham going all the way back, it doesn't mean that, they're, that they don't have an opportunity at salvation. What it does mean is as, as a group and as an organization, it has been transferred to the church. The next question, will the prophecies of restored Israel and the third temple apply to anyone today? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 says, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, 
And thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God driveth, have driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy, alone with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. What is the, what is the requirement, right? It, it says it. It says, and shall return unto, when he says, it says, um, when you shall call us to mind among all the nations, verse two, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, you have to return to God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, that then the Lord will return thy captivity. So the question you have to ask in 1948, did this happen? And the answer is no, it did not happen. Ezekiel 36, 24 says, For I will take thee from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you unto your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean for all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse thee. And this was fulfilled after the 70 years of captivity they had in Babylon. A, a handful went back. A few, few poor uh, people of Israel never left. And some came. This is why in Ezekiel and Jeremiah there's a call to come out of Babylon. And to return back to Israel. And only a few went back. Most of them stayed in the land of Israel. That's why in Revelation, it is called to come out of Babylon. It is a reference back to those who, after the captivity, after their time of trouble, found it more comfortable in Babylon than to go home where they were supposed to go. And by then, of course, Babylon had become the Medo-Persian Empire. But it was to speak to them to come back. It's time to go home. But many did not come home. They did not fully repent. And so the promises were not fully completed. A new heart also, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. He's just speaking, this is New Testament language now. I'm going to take the heart of stone out. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in. Verse 27, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Very different than what happened when Moses was speaking to the people. And they said, we will follow you. We will follow you. Now the New Testament here in Ezekiel says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to cause you to live right. The secret is not that you are born of the flesh. It is that you are born of the spirit. It's not your genetics. It is your connection to the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Look at what the 70 of his Bible commentary says on these verses. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, a new heart. We just talked about that new heart. This verse sets forth the central burden of Ezekiel's teaching. The promises of restoration were conditional upon the spiritual and moral renovation of the people. Ever since Sinai, God has sought to introduce the new covenant principles but the people refused to accept them. They did not understand that without divine grace and a change of heart, they could not render the necessary obedience. This is key to last day understanding. If we are going to stand before God in the last days, we have to have a new heart. We have to become new creatures. The Holy Spirit must be in control. But it goes on, SDA Bible commentary, Ezekiel 36. Now we're gonna look at verse 28, where it says, "Ye shall be my people. Here is critical for understanding whether or not 1948 was a, was a year when something that God did. Here it is. It says, this promise was conditional on the realization of the spiritual purity described above. 
Had the necessary revival been affected, their residence in the land would have been permanent. Jerusalem would have stood forever. From her would have gone out the dove of peace to bring the whole world under the influence of the true religion. The words, you shall be my people and I will be your God, are descriptive of the covenant relationship in which Jehovah stood toward Israel. This covenant included more than national independency and prosperity. It comprehended the whole plan to make Israel the spiritual nucleus of a worldwide missionary program. Hear that, a worldwide missionary program. The rejection of the covenant, see Matthew 21, 43, we'll come here in a second, resulted in a removal of the spiritual privilege. It did not necessarily imply that the Jews would never establish an independent political state. The present state of Israel is in no wise a fulfillment of these ancient forecasts, nor would any mass return of the Jews to Palestine be a fulfillment of these predictions. Jesus positively stated, see Matthew 21, 43, we'll read that in a second, that the covenant promise now has been given to another nation, namely the Christian church. Through this body, God is now working to evangelize the world. What did Jesus say in Matthew 21 and verse 43 that's so important? He said this, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Why then do so many Christians think Israel must exist in its current state? And I'm not, I have no problem with Israel existing, not existing. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish well for all of these nations. Uh, I obviously think that there are millions of Jews that live in Israel that that have a right to live. And so, you know, I'm definitely not someone who believes that violence, this this, this rise in violence as a way to reshape the world is not biblical. It's not Christian. Jesus said to turn the other cheek. Jesus said to walk an extra mile. He said to give them your coat if they ask for your coat. And he was more oppressed under Rome than anyone's been oppressed. His people at the time. The Roman Empire was terrible, yet he did not resort to violence. So that's not the answer. The kingdom has already been taken, church, and it was given to us to bring forth the fruits thereof. Look what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says. But Christ become, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And what building was that? That was the temple at the time. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What does this mean? Why would you be looking to build a third temple on earth when Paul speaks in Hebrews that Christ has already gone in as our high priest, our high priest who was tempted in all points as are we yet without sin. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and he's gone into the temple not made with hands, a superior temple. If he's gone in there to deal with the sin question once and for all, why would you need another temple built on earth? I talked about why last time. It is to take the precepts of futurism, throw that last week way out, have an antichrist sit in that temple to, to, to support a complete false doctrine of, of Lindsay and, and John Hagee and, and all of these people that have fooled the world into believing that there's going to be a secret rapture. We'll talk about in the, that in the next few uh, last day events talks. It's all messed up because the only tabernacle necessary now is the one in heaven. So then what was the spiritual significance of 1948? What really 
are we looking at when we think about the, the, the rise of the nation of Israel? I want to start by saying when you do the research, um, this goes back to 1840. So at the time when uh, Millerites and Adventists, not Seventh-day Adventists, our, the denomination doesn't come into existence until 1865, but Millerites and other Adventists waiting for the coming of Christ around October 22nd, 1844, um, and the date changed a couple times a little bit here and there, in 1840, 100 years before Israel came into existence, there was this movement to begin the establishment of Israel um, as a nation so that all of these futuristic, all of these precepts from futurism could come to pass. I want you to get that. So while one group was looking for the literal coming of Christ, believing that the cleansing of the sanctuary spoken of in the book of Daniel was of the earth, and there was what they call a great disappointment, which really wasn't a great disappointment, it was a great appointment to purified down to a small group of people who could take a unique message to the rest of the world. The message is of the three angels uh, of Revelation 14. So that, so you can see that it, it was we were purified for that message to go through. But at the same time, there began this rise in Zionism, not from the Jews, but from Christians. I told you, it goes all the way back to the Jesuits. So let me look at this a little bit, because someone said, well, the Balfour Declaration had nothing to do 1917 with the, with the state of Israel in 1948 or the Holocaust, that, that, those people don't understand history. The Balfour Declaration is the foundation. And it, the circumstances of World War II is what put in place the kind of mindset where people would say, you know what, we need to do this. Now, it was no longer the Balfour Declaration, Declaration in, in essence. The League of Nations was in, it was in uh, existence by the time the 1940s came around. America was not a part of the League of Nations. So Britain, the strongest nation in the world at the time in many ways, the mighty British Empire, they had a lot of sway on what happened and really wanted to do this, partly because they wanted a nation there that would protect their interests. But one of the ways that this happened is the same thing that's happening today. It was evangelicals believing that this nation had to exist for Jesus to return that actually really supported this movement. And now today, the same thing is happening. But let's look at it. Here's from the Balfour Project. This, this article says, Evangelicals, the Balfour Declaration and Zionism. I'll read just a little bit of it. By Roger Spooner, when talking about Balfour Declaration, with a pastor from Bethlehem, he commented the problems of the Palestinians didn't start in 1917. They started in 1840. So I want you to get that it, it goes back further than that. I wasn't going to get this deep into it, but, but let's look at it. So Jeffrey Alderman wrote in the Jewish Chronicle, the Balfour Declaration was born out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian mystic who believed that the Almighty had chosen him to be an instrument of, of the divine will, perhaps a precursor to the second coming of the Messiah. So Balfour thought that he had to, he was a precursor. Maybe he thought he was like a John the Baptist, not sure. Tom Segev wrote, the declaration was the product of neither military nor diplomatic interest, but of prejudice, faith, and sleight of hand. The men who sired it were Christian and Zionist, and in many cases, they were actually anti-Semitic. Rabbi Danny Rich, I am not arguing for Zionism as a Christian idea. But it is a very interesting point to make. Many of the non-Jews who supported Zionism did so out of their Christian understanding of what was happening. So when you see these signs, the Balfour, a century of injustice, somebody, some people are saying, well, the Balfour Declaration had nothing to do with the establishment. Yes, it absolutely did. This was what laid it out. Palestinians protest Balfour Declaration on the 100th anniversary. And this is... Protesters in Ramallah, Nablus, and Gaza slammed Britain for endorsing the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine a century ago. This absolutely did. And what happened in World War II, when the Jews were, one out of every three Jews was killed in the Holocaust, 
by the Nazis. That is a staggering number. All, they could have literally basically almost wiped out all of Jewry for the world. When the Jews survived, it was very easy for many to get on board with the idea of the establishment of a Jewish homeland. Much more easy because of what happened during World War II. And of course, there's more protests. Uh, Balfour Declaration paved the road for apartheid regime in Palestine and People are protesting here just, just to get you the idea that, again, it was false, in many ways, false Christian doctrine that led to this. Not saying that these, you know, the state shouldn't exist or that one shouldn't exist. It's not my point. My point is that this is based on false doctrine. And if you keep following that false doctrine, you will wind up in a very bad place, prophetically. So this is Hertz Israel News analysis. Um, Armageddon, bring it on. The evangelical force behind Trump's Jerusalem speech. The United States evangelical community is in raptures over Trump's decision to de declare Jerusalem the capital of Jerusalem, believing it moves the world closer to Armageddon. So when this war broke out, this is why so many were jumping up and down so happy because they said, ha, ah, finally, the battle of Armageddon is going to begin. They start saying, well, Russia's going to jump in and they're the king of the north from Daniel 11 and all this stuff is going to happen and the river Euphrates is going to dry up. Foolishness. None of that matters. And as you can see, none of it is happening, even though we're almost a, over a, um, almost almost two months in a, in a couple of weeks into this, into this conflict. It's not going to happen because that's not what prophecy says is going to happen, as we talked about in the last message. So the last question we'll look at today is this one. Should we be waiting for a David or a Messiah to sit on a literal, literal throne? Or dwell a little throne or dwell in a literal temple on earth now. So is there a throne, a literal throne, a literal temple for um a David to come and sit on? This is what the shepherd's rods believe. If you you're gonna you, you know you're gonna get poached, some of you, and the shepherd's rod will come up to you in church, ask you about 144,000. They talk a lot about um um Ezekiel chapter nine, and they, they have this Davidic thing. This is why David Koresh, they don't like to connect themselves to David Koresh. He comes out of that same thought pattern. That's why his name is David, because he thought he could sit on the throne. Um, you know, and this, and this is the uh, branch Davidians. This is all demonic doctrine. So demonic that the shepherd's rods believe that they must evangelize Adventists and not the world. Jesus gave no instruction for you to go and evangelize people who have the truth. He, he gave you instruction to go and evangelize the world before he left, to teach the preachers gospel in all the world. But they come just to us and refuse to evangelize the world, which is it shows you that it is a demonic movement. Never forget that. Matthew 25 verse 31 says this, when the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So some say, well, this is going to happen when this temple is built. Then the Antichrist gets kicked out. Jesus is going to come sit in it. But let's look at what the Bible really says. Luke 1, 31 says, And behold, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So the prophecies in the Old Testament that in Isaiah chapter 9, that he will sit on the throne of David, is fulfilled in Christ, although when Christ walked the earth, he never sat on said throne. So they say, well, he must be coming back to sit on that throne. Ah, it's much bigger than that. Verse 33 says, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdoms there shall be no end. How does this manifest out? Well, you got to go to Revelation chapter 21. It says, in verse 1 of Revelation 21 says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the, and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
And here's where it gets interesting because everybody thinks this Jerusalem, I, talk, I quoted John Hagee saying that Jerusalem is on the shores of eternity. People think that this Jerusalem is so important. Here's what the Bible says. Verse two, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. The one in Israel right now is not holy. The one that's holy is the New Jerusalem. Coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If Jesus is sitting on the throne, and the scripture tells us that he sat on the right hand of, of his father, if, if he's sitting on a throne, he's sitting on one in heaven, not on earth. And the new Jerusalem is coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. What tabernacle? The temple. You don't need to build one on earth. The tabernacle of God is going to be with men. And he will dwell with them and he shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. What was the purpose of the sanctuary and of the temples that were built? That God could tabernacle. It was actually called the, the, the tabernacle. That's what it was called. Why? Because God would dwell with them there. <clears throat> so why would you build one if one is coming from heaven and God is going to dwell with us and tabernacle with us from there? That's how foolish this idea is. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says this. God shall wipe away all, their, all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And here it is, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. You don't have to go back to old Israel and build, rebuild an old temple. Jesus, sitting on the throne of David, says, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Trust these words. Don't trust these left-behind books, Hal Lindsey and all these guys. Don't believe that stuff. Trust what the Bible says. John 1.47 again says this. John saw Nathanael coming to him. He said unto of him, behold, an Israelite indeed. In whom, is, in, in whom is no guile. How does that apply to us today? You want to know what kind of Israel do we want to be? Here it is. Revelation 14, verse 1 says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. What does that mean? The forehead is the frontal lobe of the brain, the reasoning center, Isaiah 118. Here God's name is written. What does the name represent? Name represents character. So this 144,000 is not, see, some people are worried about the number as the identity. The real identity is the character of the people in the 144,000. Like Nathaniel, they are Israelites indeed, people without guile. Let me show you. Verse two, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song except but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Look at how they're described. This is who the Israel I want to be a part of. Here's what it says. These are they which are not defiled with women. For they are virgins, meaning doctrinally pure. Although they are pure in the physical sense as well, because they have been washed in the blood. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And look at what it says. Just like it said about Nathaniel, Revelation 14, 5. And in their mouth was found no guile. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Nathaniel had no guile. 
He was an Israelite indeed. You want to be an Israelite indeed? Have no guile. How do we define guile? You think you're better than other people. You think there's something special about you and your flesh. That's guile. You're a hypocrite and you try and elevate yourself to look like you are better than other folks. The other description of 144,000 goes through all of the different 12 tribes. And some people say, well, it's a literal, the 12 tribes. Nah. It's a representative, prophetic allegory, speaking to the fact that like Nathaniel, like it says here, these are folk with no guile. They have been grafted in by faith. That's why they're counted. Church, this is who we want to be. We can stop focusing on what's on some of these you know, distracting false prophecies. Stop focusing on ourselves and trying to elevate ourselves to be what we are not and never could be. Stop elevating America as the savior society of the world. The scripture is clear in Revelation 13 that that second beast with the two horns like a lamb and speak as a dragon is going to be a persecuting power that's going to cause the world to worship uh, and the image set up to the first beast of Revelation 13. It's not Christian nationalism. It's not black nationalism. Our kingdom is not of this world. We are to be Israelites indeed. Meaning that there's no guile that we follow the lamb whithersoever he leads. Church, let's not be deceived. Let's follow God. And let's not be distracted by what's going on around us. We are called now to spread this gospel, finish this work so we can go home. That was the purpose of ancient Israel and they failed. And we, the Bible says in Matthew 24, it says that this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness and then shall the end come. This is a charter we must accomplish. We must do it under the power of the Holy Spirit that cleanses our character and gives us power to preach these truths so that we can go home and be a part of the new Jerusalem and see the real temple and spend time with Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the truths held therein. Help us now, Lord, not to be uh, deceived by the things of this world or by the occurrences that are happening. But Lord, let us let the Bible be our light and let us use it to interpret itself so that we grow in knowledge of you. Help us, Father God, like Paul said, to be crucified uh, in this world, crucified in the flesh so that, Lord, we might have Christ live in us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.